1: To get started, visit plushcare.com/weightloss. That's plushcare.com/weightloss. Hey everybody, I've got a little bit of housekeeping here before we get into the episode about Instagram and Theology Beer Camp. So, I've been getting more active on Instagram, and I just want to let you guys know in case you want to see me make some videos where I look directly into the camera. I'm sharing some stories and posts about basically all the topics that we cover on this show over at Instagram.com slash Dan That's C-O-K-E. And the link is in the show notes. Also, Theology Beer Camp is returning in 2024, October 17th through 19th. The theme is Return of the God Pods. That is a Lord of the Rings reference, which should surprise nobody. I will be there alongside Brian McLaren, Diana Butler Bass, The New Evangelicals, Bible for Normal People, Tony and Josh from GGCH, of course, Trip Fuller and Homebrewed Christianity, and a whole grip of others. And you can use the promo code RETURNOFYHP, all one word, for $25 off your ticket. Prices go up starting June 1st. That link will be in the notes. I hope to see a bunch of you guys there in October. It was a serious highlight of last year for me. Matthias Roberts, thank you for coming back to You Have Permission. It's so good to be back. Thanks for having me. If people are newer listeners, they will probably not recognize you. Your episode is from the early days, and it's about sexual shame. Uh, The book that you had written and published at that time was called Beyond Shame. And we had a fantastic conversation then. And sometimes when I've got people who have been on for multiple books, I like to sort of ask this like, make us a bridge sort of a question, right? So r- remind us what that book was sort of focused on. And then how, like, what happened since that got you to writing this new book, Holy Runaways?
0: So Beyond Shame was really for folks who had sexual shame or have sexual shame from purity culture, particularly. Uh, yeah. Although I think it applies to sexual shame in general. I really focused on kind of that that particular you know, somewhat Christian way <laughs> of understanding sexuality or or in particular forms of Christianity, at least. And the book really asks the question, how do we heal from sexual shame? How do we work with our sexual shame and, and try to develop a sexual ethic that is maybe broader, more life-giving than what many of us were raised with? After that book was done, I, I, I felt like more and more people <laughs> were asking this question that, that is a question that I think many people who listen to your show ask is what do I do with this whole faith thing anyway? Like aside from the sexuality question, (laughs) what do we do with faith in general? And you know, my particularity as a, as a queer person, I saw so many of my friends and people I knew wrestling with like, yeah, sure, we've maybe worked through our sexuality, but we still have these way bigger questions. I had these way bigger questions. I was like, what do I do with my faith? So, that's kind of what birthed this book. Uh, I, was, I was trying to think through like, what purpose does faith even really have in my life anymore? And for those of us who've been deeply hurt by religious institutions, what do we do with that? And, and, and again, how do we find healing?
1: Before we move away from that sexual shame and sexual ethic question, I'm curious, you're much more plugged in to the sort of wider world of post-purity culture attempts, models, frameworks. You work with sexual shame with your therapy clients regularly. That's not something that I specialize in, and you host the Queerology podcast, which because of the sort of sexual minority lens there, I'm just, I'm sure you're getting into those topics more often than I am here. Mm-hmm. What's your sense of kind of the state of things? Like it, are people kind of coming together on some agreement on what a healthy sexual ethic might look like? That is neither the repressive purity culture we had nor what I know a lot of people are trying to avoid, which is like a purely anything goes kind of sixties libertine mm-hmm. approach where it's like consent only. And then everything else is whatever you want. Like what's your sense of things?
0: I, you know, I think we're in such a transitional period yeah. <laughs> that to, to say that there's a consensus, I think there's one forming. Uh, have we found it yet? I don't know that we're at the point of where yeah. we, we, I think we have one, I think so many people are doing this work and and arriving in similar places. Places of what are our values?
1: Uh, (laughs) So values based would be one of those kind of tenets of the of the emerging consensus.
0: Yes, and 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 I think, but you know, every person. I think this is where things get difficult. Like everyone has different values, exactly, and and so it's going to look different and. I, mean, I think we talked about this in our conversation, that, that sense of, like, I think sexual ethics are particular for every person. And sure, there may be some broad things that we agree on. That's not to say that there isn't a, maybe a larger ethic out there. But but because of our particularities, like, your sexual ethic is going to look really different than mine. And I think that's okay.
1: I think that that works pretty well for adults. Yes, I, I think it's probably tougher when we're saying, all right, well, what are we going to teach children and adolescents <laughs> who don't know who they are yet? Because literally their their brains are not there yet. Yep. I think that a sort of evolutionary advantage, if you want to call it that, of purity culture was its simplicity. <laughs> it was the, the dumbest thing that anybody could understand. It's just don't do any of it. And if you do, you're bad. Right. But yeah, the, the the simplicity of that 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 was an advantage, and it's that's something that seems a little more tricky to me. I think that's true. Like I think there's so much
0: more complexity or different forms of complexity, at least when raising kids and teens and talking about this with kids and teens. And that's not something that. I get into a whole lot. Like it's a world that I I mean, I don't really work with teens. I'm not a parent. Like I, I, I always point people towards Tina Shermer sellers because she has done a lot of work around parenting and having these conversations with kids and um, has a whole book out there of what age appropriate conversations look like and how to do it in a way that doesn't pile on shame.
1: Yeah, she's working on that. Also, former um, guest of the podcast, I think her episode is called To Critique Purity Culture is the first time I covered it Mm. um, back in the day. And then also Sheila Gregoire and her research team are putting forward some stuff, specifically with young women. Mm -hmm. The new book, I see it as a part of a group of queer former evangelicals who, despite having been burned by the church at any number of levels— are pretty consciously engaged in constructive work toward maintaining or revitalizing some kind of faith, uh, like Reverend Shannon Kearns, who I recently had on Queer Theology, not to be confused with Queerology. I'm sure you guys have (laughs) had some people. Yeah. Okay. All the time. (laughs) But there are plenty more, you know, not just you and Shannon. I want to ask, you mentioned that for you, it was a little bit terrifying, this question of what do I do with the faith part? Okay, I'm resolving some of the sex, sexual shame part. What about the faith part? Like, can you give us a window into the anxiety and, and ambiguity and whatever you were feeling as as you were personally wrestling through that before the framework of the book started forming?
0: Mm-hmm.
1: To the extent that you're comfortable sharing publicly, obviously.
0: Yeah, you know, I think I think my anxiety it's an old anxiety in this sense of remnants from the way I was raised. These questions Ooh. of, if you, if you question these things, <laughs> if you start to poke at these things, like you, you're going to fall off this edge and yeah. never recover. Uh, and, and I think like, even if I can consciously engage with that, there is still like fear in my body. There's still a sense of, what is going to happen? What am I going to run into? What if I run into something that is harmful and I can't even recognize that as harmful? Like all those messages I think are, were, were in me and it's, you know, still are to some extent. And and I think that that's maybe what makes some of this so scary. It's, it's what made it so scary for me. <laughs> and as I wrote it, it only got worse. I think like a. I, I, I I didn't realize how difficult it was going to be to try to write about God. When I was Mm -hmm. writing the proposal, I had all these ideas. Then I started writing the actual book and I was like, shit, like this, this is, (laughs) I don't even know if I believe what I'm writing right now and how do I be honest about that? And it really forced me to get really clear with myself because I didn't want to write something that felt like I was
1: just repeating or performing something that I had been told. Absolutely. You talk about this can't you know, what if I come up against something that I don't even recognize as harmful? And and what I took you to mean is that there is a kind of self doubt that is actually very consciously instilled in people in conservative Protestant spaces where, you know, the heart is deceitful above all things. That's a right. A commonly quoted verse you do come against it in purity culture to some degree of like uh, you know your what your body wants you have to really really resist that until the appropriate time but maybe the more pernicious one is the like you you can't trust your emotions stuff and right. I did a uh, had a really great interview with Becky Castle Miller about that from a while back Josh can put all these episodes and links in the show notes for listeners, if they want to go back and listen, but you know, that idea that like, even in the four spiritual laws, that very popular uh, evangelism tool, there is the, like um, after the four spiritual laws, it's almost like the fifth one. It's like the sixth member of a basketball team is reason drives the train and emotion is behind and you can't really trust your emotions. You can trust your reason. And man, depending on how seriously you took that uh, as a kid like there's a there's a real self-defeating almost like a it's like a logical tripwire mm-hmm. in that that you have to basically choose to step over the tripwire and you have to go well i'm going to see if that might be wrong but how do you find out if it's wrong unless you try it right. and you see if your your emotions can be trusted and you look for evidence and so it takes time there's no quick kind of way out of it it's it's Honestly, it's continued to plague me. I, I hear it from listeners a lot. It's it's so interesting.
0: Yeah. This idea of empathy, w- which I, I, you know, I think empathy is an emotion among other things. I don't think it's just an emotion, but I, I think there, there's an emotional tie to it uh, where mm-hmm. we see someone suffering and we um, can identify with that. And I, I think for so many of us, I'll speak for myself, for, for me, what really started this whole... I mean, I call it a runaway journey, but other people call it deconstruction, like whatever language you want to put on it, was seeing people suffering and then making that conscious choice to actually listen to them instead Mm -hmm. of running back to the dogma that I had been taught. Yeah. And I, I think for many people I've talked to, at least like that's, that's usually what happens. Like people see pain, people see suffering, choose to engage with that. And then that starts to shatter either slowly or really quickly, I mean, it can happen either way, this dogma that many of us have been taught. And, and then we start asking these big questions of, well, what do I even do with this? Like, if what I've been taught about these people over here isn't accurate, isn't true, then what about
1: everything else that I've been taught? Yeah, that destabilization is Essentially a, probably a prerequisite for ever listening to either of our podcasts. Uh (laughs) (laughs) Having felt, I I suppose there are a few people out of just idle curiosity. Sure. I wonder what they we're talking about this week, but like most people who end up in the spaces that you and I have curated, like have had a fairly deep experience of, of that kind of, oh my goodness, like, wow, we've really come to a place here that, that needs to, that needs some focus so walk us through a little bit then, obviously that that terror was not justified because you did finish the book. You managed to say things about God and you managed to complete a book that ultimately argues for retaining faith in some way, um, as opposed to being like, you know what, that shit was toxic. Let's leave it behind. Let's start something new. Can you say any more about that personal journey? I mean, obviously- you know, we're both therapists. I'm interested in the sort of psychological aspect of what went on in your, in your mind and whatnot, but whatever you're comfortable sharing. So w- when I was in graduate school, you
0: started running into the work of both Rene Girard, the philosopher and the theologian, James Allison and their work playing with the philosophy of human desire. And, and I think the psychology of it, um, of how does human desire actually work? But then, Allison particularly, taking that and and turning it into kind of a a theological uh, reflection, at least, (laughs) application. And, And that, for me, started answering this question of what even is the point of this? Like, what is the point of faith? Why do I believe this? If I want to believe that God is love, which I do, I really wanted to believe that. Like, how do I reckon with all of this? evidence maybe to the contrary. Uh, and and yeah. I think it was through th- these people, Allison and Gerard, that that helped me see kind of a way of understanding Christianity that felt deeply liberative and one where I could hold on to a belief of God being love and, and love being a massive force in the universe I don't think it's the only way. <laughs> I, I don't think, yeah. I think there are many, many, many other people doing that work really well too. But for me, it, w- it was their ideas that really got me. It was kind of that jump from what do I do with this to like, oh, here's actually a way of understanding that I can get on board with and that I can feel it can, can be really generative in the way I think about humans and think about the divine.
1: Can you give me an example maybe on the theological angle? I've not read either of them but I'm much more familiar with Girard and mm-hmm. the mimetic desire and scapegoating and you know he comes into atonement theory conversations a lot. Um but Allison I'm I'm not really familiar with so like can you give us an example of one of his theological ideas that that you go you thought ah that I can sink my teeth into that right yes. there. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Gerard's kind of mimetic desire is this idea that, that human desire is not linear. So, so often when we think about desire, we think about like I want that. We see something, I want it, <laughs> so I go and get it. Whereas Gerard argued, like, that's not actually true. Like, desire is modeled to us by other people and and through community. So a a really easy example to understand is kind of advertising. We see an advertisement. That's modeling desire to us, saying, you want this. We say, oh, you're right. I do want that. Mm -hmm. So then we go get it. So it's a a triangular model. Yeah, I listen Um, to
1: movie podcasts. And, you know, I hear Chris Ryan on the Rewatchables or The Watch talking about, you know, the Equalizer movies. And it makes me think like, oh, I I think I do want to watch those movies because I do like things like that. I'm enjoying listening to him talk about what he likes. It's actually influencing what movies I want to put on that evening. Right? right? And- So that's not a problem necessarily. It's just, that's kind of how it works in that case. Right.
0: Yes. Yeah. Yeah. It is how it works. I mean, Gerard argues like this is just foundational to human nature. (laughs) Like, and we have other fields. I mean, there are fields in psychology, interpersonal neurobiology that all are kind of confirm his ideas around that. Gerard is basically saying we always have a model. We always are reflecting a model of something. So, so on the theological, yeah. Allison then then jumps in, and essentially is saying, you know, we have a choice to, uh, based off of what what our our desires modeled off of. We can model off of other humans, so an in and out system, because uh, that's that's all we as humans, according to Allison and Gerard, really know how to make, create these communities where we're in agreement with each other. And those of us who are in are in, and we have a lot of other people who are out. Mm -hmm. Allison says, what happens if we start to model our desire off of something that is so entirely outside of human systems that we can't even comprehend it? And that is God, according to Allison. And then, you know, as reflected in Jesus (laughs) and how Jesus came uh, to earth to, to show us, according to Allison, a different way of being, a different way of
1: reflecting hmm. desire, essentially. So basically, we have to gather our collective gaze around something together. Yeah. Yes. And Allison's like, what better thing model to, to sort of organize that collective gaze of desire and, and structure and whatever than, for instance, the person of Jesus and the teaching yes. of Jesus.
0: Right. Yes something that is non competitive, something that uh doesn't have a system of in and
1: out um although that's so different from many of the religions that we're that we've been in um well of course he and and he has been used to create all kinds of in and out systems, but in the actual gospels, you have Jesus kind of constantly pushing back right. on exclusionary criteria who's yes. in who's out exactly,
0: yeah. Yeah, so I, I mean, I unpack like that. that a lot in the book, but but I I found that so helpful to think about. Like, there, there's actually something that allows me as a person to live in a more loving way in this world, <laughs> and and to to yeah. model um, or to to change these models onto you know, the person of Jesus. This idea of God being loving in a, in a profoundly non-competitive way that allows me to show up differently in the
1: world. And that felt really powerful to me. Well, it's powerful to me as I hear you talk about it, because one thing I've noticed is that my sort of reasons for remaining a Christian have become a lot less about truth claims and a lot more about practicality and does it work Mm -hmm. and what's it doing? There's a lot of reasons for that. I'm sure not least among them is the fact that although not with my parents themselves, the, the world that I was raised in through them, via them has come to essentially disregard a huge chunk of the truth claims that so much energy was put into us coming to believe and be able to repeat these truth claims. And then like, the shiny Trump comes along and it's like, oh, well, fuck all that stuff. We don't need any of that, I guess. Yep. It's just about having power. That's a vast oversimplification of, you know, 100 million, 50 million people and, and their slight variations on that. But I do wonder, like, do you think that that's played a role for you as well in sort of more focus on what's workable and less what I can prove? Yes,
0: very much so. You know, because I was raised, and I think we're similar in this, like I was raised in the era of apologetics will save us all. Like, yeah. <laughs> like I remember sitting in front, like as a family, watching like Ken Ham um, explain, you know, why creationism, literal seven-day creationism is the only way that you can be a Christian and his arguments against, you know, science <laughs> saying like, here's how you take down people who believe in evolution and and thinking oh, yeah. like these arguments are irrefutable until, you know, you go out into the world and realize they're very easily refutable. And and I think, like, many of us have witnessed that compounding. (laughs) Like, everything that that we thought, you know, was irrefutable, we've realized it's not actually true. Like, arguments aren't the way forward. Uh, There has to be something more here. Uh, And and that really has been my experience of if I'm going to continue to buy into this system, this belief system, it has to be more than just an argument.
1: Neither you nor I are exclusivist in our worldviews, in our religious views. Neither of us thinks that, well, you better get on board with the Girardian, Allisonian version of Jesus or else you're, you know, you're screwed or something. Right. Like we're we don't think that way. Mm hmm. The stakes for us of other people not being people of faith or, or maybe huge chunks of this kind of deconstructed runaway community, leaving it all together, you know, the stakes aren't hell. The stakes mm-hmm. are not the kind of stakes that we were taught growing up. But nonetheless, the fact that you and I continue to do this work, you host a podcast, you write books, we both see clients struggling through these issues. Uh, And get a lot of value from working in this world. We do feel like there are some stakes or else we wouldn't do it. Mm -hmm. So even though the stakes aren't hell, what are the stakes, do you think, for people who might be on the fence uh, and may or may not come to workable versions of some kind of faith for themselves, their families, their communities.
0: When I think about stakes, I don't really think about it in eternal ways anymore. So I'll, yeah. ca- I'll caveat with that. Like these are not eternal stakes in my mind. The stakes for me are very much in the here and now. The, the stakes of trauma, the, 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 the stakes of not being able to find a sense of peace, a sense of flourishing, having to live with, high amounts of anxiety or a sense of everything about me is bad. So, so shame. Like, I think the, these are the stakes that we're talking about that, like I I talk about wanting to help people find freedom and flourishing (laughs) or, I mean, in Jesus's world words, like to have abundant life. Like Mm -hmm. I, I, I think there's this picture in the gospel stories of a life that is, I'm not going to say free from anxiety because I, I don't know that that's necessarily possible, <laughs> but but a life that is grounded, settled, uh, where we actually feel like we can exist in the world mm-hmm. uh, as we are being loved uh, and not having to grasp or be caught up in these kind of games of identity that seem to kind of permeate life and and um, maybe a lot of our systems in the, in the world.
1: I think those are the stakes, living a good life. I do kind of like your image of, of being a, a holy runaway as an alternate to like a deconstructed, you know, ex-Christian or ex-evangelical or whatever these other options are. One of the things that I think is cool about that image is that some people do genuinely need to run away or are forced out. I've, I've had listeners use the language of spiritual exile. Yeah. I also like that language a lot. The thing about runaways is like, and you, and you talk about this in the book, you use this to sort of motivate the image is like there's the initial period You know, we all remember being kids and and wanting to run away from home or whatever. And then there's kind of the cool down and then there's the reappraisal. Mm -hmm. And, you know, as children, when we run away from home, well, I guess I can speak for myself. There was never like a truly compelling reason for me to run away from home. Other homes, there would have been. Yeah, right. And in the case of white evangelicalism, you and I both agree there are some really compelling reasons that we had to leave. And... So I like that that kind of spreads out the onus a little bit, but I also like that there's sort of a sequential lens to this too. Like, okay, we did need to get out, but then it's not as if getting out will solve everything. And if we think it will, then we're actually just applying some of the flawed logic from that system. Oh, just get these three or four boxes checked And these things in order, make sure you're doing your quiet times every day, make sure you got whatever, and then everything will literally work out for you. Mm -hmm. And so we can be convinced still by that kind of background logic that, well, once we get out, then we've solved it. And we could just put a bunch of energy into helping other people get out Mm -hmm. and celebrating getting out Mm -hmm. or whatever. Mm -hmm. That doesn't get us to that later step of rebuilding a life. Is that... Am I right that that's kind of how you're thinking about it with that sequential lens? Yes.
0: Yes, very much so. And and I like the way you say that rebuilding a life. Because for me, it's not so much about rebuilding a faith, although it is. <laughs> but but this far more integrated sense of, yeah, a life. How, how do we actually move into something that is related to faith, sure, but is so much more than that too. Many of us have been there. <laughs> we get stuck once once we've left, uh, and I think it's a, we need that. I, th- I think we need places where you know we can really work with our grief. We can really work with our anger. Uh, we can we can push back against these systems in ways that we've maybe never been able to before. In, in ways that might be really reactive. I think we need that, but I, I also think there's this question of yeah. Then what happens? after that. And that's what I was really interested in this book (laughs) was how do we go into living a life,
1: uh, finding healing. One of the tricky things I'm sure you see this with your podcast audience as well is you've constantly got new people coming in who are at, you know, obviously people's journeys are different, but broadly speaking, earlier phases, you know, Mm -hmm. they are probably younger, often younger, you know, maybe a Christian college student, or someone right out of college is like, oh, shit. And then there are people who've been listening to to what we've been doing and others like us for 10 plus years. And they've just done a lot more. I don't know. They, they've had a lot more life that's gone on in, in the time in between. Like, how did you think about... How to aim the book in that sense, because, you know, as a therapist and especially even this is a little inside baseball, but the way that you were trained to do therapy versus the way that I was trained to do therapy, you're way more narrative trained Mm -hmm. than I am. I'm a lot more here and now anyway. So especially as someone who's really focused on people's story, helping them restory their lives. I mean, how do where, where do you aim? Where do you aim a book? Yeah, yeah.
0: It, it was, this was difficult, like, because I really wanted and I hope the book is accessible for folks who are just starting out as mm-hmm. much as it is accessible to folks who have been on this journey for a while and who are kind of looking for different ways of understanding what has even happened. And, I, you know, I think for me, I, I really wrote the beginning of the book in a way that, that tried to target these early stages (laughs) that even if we're further Mm. along, we can at least go back and recognize like, Oh, that's interesting. Um, I remember that, or hopefully even maybe giving some different language for understanding what was happening then. Cause I, cause I know, I, I know so many people who may have gone through it, but don't actually know what happened right? (laughs) Can't actually put language around like, oh, this is what was going on.
1: I think so much of what we do is just give people language. Yes. Absolutely.
0: Right. And and then I move into these other bigger questions so that, you know, I'm bringing, hopefully bringing the reader along, regardless of what stage they're on, to then be able to consider these big questions. So some some readers might find the latter half of the book far more helpful than the first. Other people might find the first half really helpful and the second half being like i can't do this yet <laughs> i don't actually want this yet and like that's that's okay it, it, it hopefully applies to all of those folks
1: if you'd like more you have permission you can become a patron at patreon.com slash dan that link is in the show notes patrons get at least two additional episodes per month, exclusive to them, as well as access to the patron only Facebook group, which is an awesome little online community for talking through all the crap that we are thinking as our faiths and our lives change. Um, it's a great, great community. So again, patreon.com slash Dan Koch, uh, support something that you care about and join the community back to the episode. We both agree that there are people for whom, at least in their current moment, it's not helpful, not healthy, uh, not likely to result in in good for them to try and jump back into a life of, you know, at least a life of religious faith. You know, I think spirituality is a bit more plastic than than religiosity is, for instance. But how could someone tell if they're ready? Like mm. – I don't know if you you could speak to your own experience or if if through working on the book, you have a sense of like, what would be the signs? Just just like if I have a client who's like, man, I've been noticing like I've been sleeping in. I've had a small appetite. I haven't wanted to hang out with my friends. I'd be like, oh, you know, I think you're probably depressed right now. Mm -hmm. Those are signs that you're depressed. Like, do, do you have signs for someone to be like, oh, yeah, maybe it's time for like, maybe I... If, if that's, I've healed enough, if that's, or processed enough, if it's, I'm missing this, like, how, how would you, how would you think about that?
0: In the, the very beginning of the book and the authors know, I, I, I say to readers, if I saw someone come up to me holding sandpaper to a bleeding wound, I would ask them, why are you trying to use sandpaper to heal? And then gently try to encourage them. Can you put this sandpaper down and find a bandage instead? Yeah. And then say like, if this book feels like sandpaper to you, put it down. Yeah. Uh, and I, you know, I think like that idea of <laughs> sandpaper is so abrasive. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. I, I think that sense of many of us know what it feels like when we're running into something that is abrasive. Maybe it brings up defensiveness. Maybe we feel exhausted or like it feels like it is touching on all of this pain. I, I think those are signs that maybe like putting this work down for some time and trying to find just some rest, <laughs> some pause, may be in order. I, I, I think we this work is slow. Many people try to do it fast. And... Slowing down, I think, is greatly beneficial because uh, it's the work of a lifetime,
1: and you're able to slow down because the stakes are not eternal, right? Yes, right. Yep. yep. When the stakes are eternal, it's like, well, you you better. I actually think so much can be explained by this concept of stakes. Like, you got to talk to the person who's on the flight with you mm-hmm. because you got three hours, and they may never hear the gospel again. Never mind that these people are almost always Americans and surely know many Christians in a nation where 80% of people are Christian (laughs) identifies whatever the number is or was then probably was higher then when I was a kid. Uh, But yeah, the the reduced stakes allow you to go, all right, okay, no one's going to hell that's off the table. So then what does real healing look like? And we can pursue that (laughs) to that end. I want to throw this out there. Bring a little bit of the therapy room into the podcast studio. So I've been kind of toying around with this, idea that came up organically in talking with some clients Mm. and it's the idea that like there's a difference between what we might call trauma and what we might call sort of regular suffering
0: Mm -hmm.
1: and trauma is something that requires basically special help you experience something and it has not left your nervous system it's not left your memory. There are incursions, right? So if somebody has PTSD, they have sort of unwanted thoughts, flashbacks, nightmares. They feel themselves put back into the traumatic situation by stimuli that remind them of it. You know, they, they end up with avoidance symptoms, To So they stay away from people or places that might trigger a PTSD reaction. So it's affecting their lives in a way where it's unresolved. When I talk about trauma with my clients, I use the image of like a field of geysers. Hmm. You might not necessarily know like which geyser is going to go off when, but you know, they're going to keep going off Mm -hmm. until that water pressure is removed. Yeah. Whereas suffering sort of more normal suffering, that's not, Sort of continually causing effects on us because it's unresolved. Well, everybody suffers. I mean, the Buddha said life is suffering. That's probably seems kind of right to me. Mm-hmm. And the ways that we suffer that don't stay with us the way trauma stays with us, those sufferings just end up making us who we are. Mm-hmm. You know, so I did experience some end times trauma as a child and I've worked through it. And now I research spiritual abuse and I probably wouldn't if I hadn't had that experience. So in the, you know, resolved trauma and ordinary suffering, they suck. And we certainly we like never want our kids to experience them, but we can't keep them from suffering. Yep. So I don't know. Do you like that? Like, I know it's a little oversimplistic. It's probably more of a continuum than two categories. First of all, what do you think about therapist to therapist? What do you think of my of that lens of that sort of image?
0: I mean, I love the geyser imagery. Like, I love that. I might actually steal that if that's okay. Feel free, yes. (laughs) That's that's such (laughs) a helpful way to think about it. I agree with that. Like, I I mean, it's making me think of folks over at the Religious Trauma Institute uh, Mm -hmm. and and how they define these things. They they talk about adverse religious experiences and then, you know, religious trauma as being two very different things. But on that continuum, on that spectrum, just because we've had. Experiences that are adverse, you know, harmful, does not mean that they have been traumatizing. Like yeah. Those are different things and they're based in the particularity of who we are as people. Like you and I could be sitting right next to each other in the same church and have the same experience. I could be traumatized by that experience where you wouldn't even blink. Like right. it's that particular. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I think those distinctions are so important especially when
1: we start to talk about yeah trauma so i wonder if we could apply that lens here in mm. terms of maybe helping people figure out where they're at like are they in the market for your book or other resources that would you know like are they in the market to to try an episcopal church mm. are they in the market to to you know fill in the blank and i wonder if it's like oh i've actually still got some trauma That has not been resolved. I am being triggered. I am avoiding certain things. I'm whatever. Like, that's kind of the the shortcut I would use is like, look at the PTSD symptoms and see if they apply to you. Uh, And you can just Google those if you don't, if you don't know them, if you're not a clinician, you don't have them handy like you and I do. You know, that's easily Googleable. And if you don't have those, well, then maybe, yeah, it is more just like suffering. Uh, It could be adverse religious experiences. I don't know. What do you think about that as a sort of self-diagnostic kind of approach? I think determining those things can be really helpful,
0: but, but in my mind, this is where I'm going to say two things that contradict each other. I don't know that it really matters and it matters so much. <laughs> uh, <laughs> okay. on, on one hand, in the sense that I don't think it really matters in the sense of we're talking about pain here and you know Whether we are on a spectrum from like small pain to capital T trauma, I, wherever we are on that spectrum, we have experienced pain. And therefore, I think working with that pain can be really helpful and beneficial. Now, where I do think is really important is knowing some of that line between what is Pain that can be worked with kind of within ourselves, maybe within community without specialized help, and pain that might take some specialization to actually be able to work with when we actually get to like capital T trauma. Knowing that line can be so beneficial to know what kind of help we need. um, But I think it takes time to even be able to determine that. I mean, some folks certainly out there know, no, I have trauma. (laughs) <laughs> they know that well, they know what those symptoms right, are. right? But I think for many of us, this was myself, I had no clue I had trauma until I started getting into communities that helped me actually start to work with my pain. And then we started bumping into these things that were like, wait a second, there's something way bigger here. Interesting. So so I think, I mean, my book, but so many other people's work out there, uh, if it's helping us engage with our pain, then we can slowly across time work with it and and start to realize like, oh, I'm healing in these places, but I think I need more help with
1: this. Uh, And that is so important. Speaking of, you know, this group of people. And kind of back to the group I, I mentioned earlier of, you know, I'm thinking of largely queer Christian writers and speakers, but, you know, it's it's not only uh, it's it's hetero dudes and gals like myself as well. This idea of and I would put myself in that group of people trying to trying to find ways to keep faith viable mm-hmm. for us runaways if we want to use that language. I think you're probably pretty connected to that world in a way, actually probably more than I am. I think you, you speak at more conferences with the books coming out, you sort of, it's part of the job to kind of be out and about in that world. What is your sense of kind of where the winds are shifting among, among that crew of, of thinkers, writers, speakers, and, and if there's a particularity to the, to the sort of queer corner of that world, I'd, I'd be especially interested in that.
0: You know, um, among the, the thinkers and speakers who are kind of doing this work, I, you know, I don't actually know. What I do think I'm sensing is among the people who engage with our work. Okay, even better. <laughs> and, and, yeah. and people who engage with our work, this this is my read, I don't know if it's true, <laughs> but are, are hungry for folks who can come alongside and, and help them process. I, I think people are growing really tired of in some ways, experts, although we are looking for expertise, (laughs) certainly, but, but this model of here are the people who know things and here are the people who learn things from the people who know things like that's getting more and more blurry. And I think people are getting more and more fed up with that, that model. And, and I think that the people who are trying to teach out of that model, (laughs) I think they're getting more and more frustrated. Like, why are people not paying attention to me anymore? (laughs) And... For better or for worse, I think it's for better. Like, we are looking for companionship. And you hear me saying we, because I think I'm in that same boat. Like, I want people who I feel like I can trust and who are helping me attune more to myself than to this external sense of, here's what you have to do in order to be made whole or
1: be made right or right in God's eyes or whatever. Mm -hmm. I think that's a lot of the movement. What you're saying is I've picked a bad time to become a doctor. <laughs>
0: <laughs> but, but, well, you're doing, but you're doing this work in a far different way from what would be called, like, I mean, you're, you're jumping into this as a, as a, I mean, primarily a clinician, right? Like, <laughs> with expertise.
1: <laughs> yeah. But I do think there's a tension because you say, well, we don't necessarily just want experts. We, what we need is people we can trust. But if you don't know people in real yeah. life, how do yeah. you, how do you know who you can trust? Right. And, and then expertise, <laughs> yep. yes. you know, like it, it's, so there is a real, what I found myself, I, and I noticed this and it's been affecting my work. So I noticed with our pediatrician and with uh, my wife and I's primary care physician, both of them, I really love how they are really up on the research In the relevant fields that we're talking about. And I even see them sometimes like look something up and like check what they were going to say against whatever access they have on their computer um, to sort of like, I don't know if they're if the medical uh, company they work for has sort of like talking points from latest research or if they're actually kind of pulling stuff up on Google Scholar or what they're doing. But they they have a real facility with like the most careful empirical evidence now for yeah. healthcare, that, you know, is maybe more of a no brainer than stuff like spirituality and psychology. But that's made me want to be more steeped in the empirical research to the extent that it is applicable to the questions people are asking. And it has been informing my work and, and something that I want to I, I literally want to be known for it because my doctors, I know them for it Mm -hmm. and it makes me trust them better Mm because I don't hang out with them every week. I don't know them the way I know my friends. Right. But that, but like our trust in expertise and in that kind of thing is going down as a society, I would say. So I recognize that tension. Like I have no, I have to do it because it is what I actually think serves people best. Mm -hmm. It's also how I think I will know the truth best. But I also recognize like, That's not the rising wave. If I wanted to be really popular, I would just dig into finding a contingent who feels really strongly about something that they feel like no one's listening to them. And I would hammer home those grievances and I would offer them fake answers that sounded like the answers they wanted. And Matthias, I would be five to 10 times as popular as I am if I did that. For sure. And I would, and that would be a Faustian bargain where I would be selling my soul and my values to the devil, so to speak, Mm -hmm. in order to get famous or wealthy or whatever. And that, but that's how I would do it if I wanted to. Right. Because this careful researched approach is not, is not what most people are looking for right now.
0: And, and, and I think that, I mean, that, that sense of we're looking for companions. (laughs) Like that, yeah. in some ways, it sounds beautiful. We're looking for companions, but but I think that's also the danger, right? Like, we're looking for companions, we're looking for people to be like, You're right, <laughs> yeah, you are right. Interesting, everyone else is wrong, yeah. And this is what Gerard speaks to so well. <laughs> I mean, the way that this creation of in and out groups, or what he calls the sacred and the profane, uh, it, it drives our systems, uh, and it is really hard. And in fact, I think Gerard would even say this, like we actually can't get out of that as humans. Like
1: it is how we work. Yeah. But then it goes back to who are we paying attention to? i got two more questions for you by calling us holy runaways. One concern I potentially have is that people could take this as another tribal manifesto, Mm -hmm. like just like in the Gerardian language, right? Like another sacred and profane, Though people we were taught were the sacred, they are actually, in fact, the profane. They're the bad guys who poisoned the water and forced us out. Boomer evangelicals are responsible for the death of the world. They're the only real villains of the story. And if we get to that point psychologically, we will then baptize everything we're going to do beforehand. Obviously, I know that that's not what you think and that's not the argument that you make in the book. How did you keep from writing something that that would be taken that way because i know you thought about that yeah
0: well i think it still could like i think like it very easily could be taken that way uh, well I, if you actually read the book i don't know that it could but like <laughs> yeah <laughs> um
1: people could pull a quote and take it that way but not if they for read the sure whole thing.
0: yeah, yeah. Like, and I felt like I felt it even with myself, like there was parts of me and I think I even have drafts of this, of like trying to even write a manifesto of the Holy Runaway. Cause like, I was like, this Mm. would be cool. And then I started doing it and I was like, actually, no, it's not cool at all.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Are manifestos cool? What's the latest on that? I don't know.
0: But, but I mean, yeah, it, it does speak to this innate part of ourselves that need to define ourselves against, over and against other people. We receive our identities from the identities of the people around us. The question for me is not, if we do that, we do do that. The the question is, how do we become more aware of how we are doing that? And, And then how do we step away from it? How do we realize that we are all people? And I don't say that in a way that whitewashes. Yeah. <laughs> like, I mean, it, it's so easy for that to become an argument that like, we're all the same. Therefore we're one human race and we all got to love each other. No, we have very real differences. And those yeah. differences are important. Um, and it's important to continue to work towards justice, but to set up a system of, I am the right good person working towards justice. And all those people aren't. It, 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 no, <laughs> like It's the same fulcrum.
1: Even though a lot of our psychological training is different, we both practice and and 95% of therapists today practice essentially person-centered therapy. Mm -hmm. Um, And the kind of main concept there is is having unconditional positive regard for your clients and, and that that is a prerequisite for them changing in a therapeutic relationship, that they have to feel accepted and, and basically liked by you Mm -hmm. in order for the hardest, you know, deepest, most shameful, scariest, in order for them to bring that stuff into the room, like no one will do that unless they feel fundamentally accepted. Mm -hmm. So we have to get trained in that in order to do our jobs. But that's also been like kind of revolutionary for me, sort of, at a philosophical and theological level Mm -hmm. of just like having to learn to do that, even with people that I wouldn't want to spend time with otherwise. And it does start to change. I think the way you look at some of these culture war type issues, these sort of broader us versus them issues. And you go, well, okay. I can imagine if I had that guy in my therapy room, Mm. what would I be thinking? What kind of questions would I be asking him? And how would I show him that he's accepted enough to answer those questions and, and follow where they go mm-hmm. to have actual healing? It's yeah. like, in a sense, we have been trained into a multi-level nuanced model of human healing. Mm-hmm. That's maybe another way of putting it. And it, it forces us to reject binaries, at least in the room. And I know for me, it's made me even more skeptical of binaries Out in the world, and so I would guess that that's been a part of it for you too—the training and then the experience with clients. Is that is that right? Yeah, that's spot on. Yes, you know I, I think
0: about a mentor of mine, Dan Allender, who who always says, and he he's he it's more of a theological statement, but I think he brings it into at least his therapy rooms as well, like. It is the kindness of God that leads to repentance, which Mm. is, you know, straight from scripture. Um, Like, like this idea that change cannot happen without the presence of kindness. And that is so convicting to me. (laughs) I love that. I mean, when he talks about repentance, like he, he ultimately, Dan defines it as just turning, turning around, turning directions, like change. And, and I think that is so true. Like we change in the presence of kindness, feeling liked, feeling attuned to attachment categories, attunement, containment, repair, all of those things is, is the prerequisite. Like you're saying to change, not this. I hate you and have to show you the ways that you're wrong. <laughs> it's not going to do anything. Uh, in fact, it will only further
1: polarize. Last question for you. The main thrust of the book Let's try and find a workable faith on the other side of this change. That could be made by a queer Christian, could be made by a straight Christian. It could be made by a spiritual but not religious person who's trying and doesn't even know where they land. But I would imagine that your experience as a queer Christian, I mean, just given what I know about this country, (laughs) would have shaped sort of the way that you thought about and ultimately kind of made that case. Can you tell us about that? Yeah.
0: I mean, so much of my experience is one that is filtered through my queerness, like being, you know, told in explicit and non-explicit ways that because of who I am, I do not belong in the communities that I was raised in, Uh, that I couldn't belong, that there was something wrong with me, that I was an abomination I uh, would be going to hell. Like, all of those things are, you know, deeply ingrained in my body. <laughs> and really, I think, you know, before I started studying these things and working on those things, like, they were part of my experience, and oh, this doesn't make any sense. Like, I love God as much as everyone else around me, and yet they're all telling me I can't. Like, that mm. doesn't make any sense. And it hurt. There was so much pain there. And and so I think this I mean this book is birthed out of that pain, and and it's also birthed out of my belief that like, you know there, there are so many queer folks who are part of Christian traditions who are doing this work, who get pigeonholed into you're a queer person you're just speaking to to queer people, and I think that's natural, <laughs> but but I think us as as queer folks have so much to offer this larger body of of folks because of the ways that we have known hurt pain. This is, this can be said of all
1: minorities. Like (laughs) I was just thinking about the black church. Yes. Right. right? Like Like, when, when people, and I just did an episode recently with Tim from the new evangelicals, mm -hmm. it came out actually today as we're recording this, it, it came out on, on September 18th. And we were talking about is the whole of Christianity toxic. Mm. And he was like, take the civil rights movement as led by MLK and others in the fifties and sixties. Like, I mean, could anybody call that toxic Christianity? (laughs) Like, and, and, and it's in part because they didn't have to prove it because they had already suffered so much and for so long And the fact that they use the language of their faith to appeal to people for equality and justice. I mean, it's like most of my most of my American Christian heroes are black because they just were forged in a different kind of fire. And so that's interesting. I don't I don't think that I have applied that same lens to the queer Christian community, but it does make sense. It's maybe a little bit less organized, less newsworthy. We don't have the, we don't have it as readily available as like the black civil rights movement as we have that available in our minds, but there is a lot of shared um, experience there. Yes. Uh, So much.
0: And, and I mean, just so it's said explicitly and so much difference, so much particularity in those like, but I think, I mean, it, it comes back to this idea of, of scapegoating those who are cast out of the in group, the scapegoat, always tells the truth as to what happened to them. Even though those who are in power are the ones who write the history. They're the ones who say, no, this is what we did to you. Right. The, 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 the scapegoat is the one who's actually telling the truth of, no, you cast me out. Um, you, There is something wrong with this group. Uh, and, and, and I think, you know, that applies to all scapegoats. I mean, sure, there may be some people who don't tell the truth, but whatever. Like, I, I think... Yeah. primarily those who are at the margins are the ones who
1: tell the truth about what is happening on the inside um, because they see it clearly. That's kind of what Tim and I were talking about is that the balance that I'm trying to find is listening to those who have been hurt and taking their account seriously as a part of all the evidence. Mm. I think there can be a time when we can err too far on that side. If there is also other evidence Mm-hmm. That is like that a, a reasonable sort of fair minded person would count as evidence. Obviously, systems of power do not tend to and are not set up to primarily listen to victims and all that kind of thing. And so those systems will have a strong bias against, you know, victim blaming and shunning. And I mean, a bunch of my spiritual abuse research is about exactly that stuff but then we also have to make calls in a you know like those of us who are not the power brokers still have to make decisions and it and i don't think we can always rely exclusively on you know one type of report at the expense of of other evidence but that's more a statement about in my mind how difficult it is to know things in mm. the world than it is about the sort of um, lack of value of those people, their experiences, and their reporting of those experiences, if that makes sense. Sure.
0: It, it does. I mean, it, it, it's hard to speak about these things with all the nuance they deserve. Like, I mean, and, yeah. and I didn't even try. I said always. <laughs> like, yeah, I yeah. Mean, they,
1: <laughs> Well, then you caught yourself and then you <laughs> go like, oh, I guess some people do lie. <laughs> right, right. It's, yeah.
0: Right. Like, I mean, I, I think that this does speak to the difficulty and, like, I deeply believe, deeply believe, I would say it's a tenet of my faith, even, that that those on the margins tell the truth. I think we need to be paying attention to that.
1: Yeah, we do. Matthias Roberts, thank you so much for joining me again. Uh, another wonderful conversation. The book, Holy Runaways, is out or will be out within a couple of days when this comes out. So we'll have a link to that in the show notes. Anything else you'd like us to link to for people to... Be in touch. I'm across social media at Matthias Roberts uh, and MatthiasRoberts.com. Two T's. Yep, phonetically spelled. Otherwise, Um, (laughs) thanks, man. This is great. Thank you. This is fun.